Toshiro Muffin! Ooh, <laughs> muffin. And then we'll also make some Takashi Shrimp Cocktails. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Wendy Bowlesby and Melissa Kirscher. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I'm Wendy, joined as always by Melissa, and joined yet again, yet again, by Mr. Noel Thingball. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of awesome, really. <laughs> and this week, we continue, we finish, hopefully, Kurosawa. And, uh, yeah, this is also part two of the week that the wine won and I fell asleep. So, uh, boop and take it away, Melissa, with your editing skills. Yay! And, uh, then we get to the Hidden Fortress, which I believe you had some things to say about. Uh, Which, you know, if we didn't have Hidden Fortress, we wouldn't have Star Wars. That's why I watched it, and I understand Kurosawa is a genius, and I feel like... Perhaps if I had a better understanding of Japanese culture, not just Japanese culture, but like specific, like very specific cultural norms, that perhaps I could have gained more from it. But mostly what I remember from watching that movie, and maybe I should watch it again. Mm. I will, I am, will cop to this. Well, there are a lot of movies. The problem is a lot of people go in thinking the Star Wars thing when the connection is really not that strong. Yeah. You yeah. just kind of need to it, approach it as its own movie. It's true. Yeah, and we were definitely watching it from that mindset. Mm-hmm. I will admit to that. I feel like I'm much more of a cinephile now than when I first watched it, mm-hmm. and maybe that would inform my viewing. All that said, what I remember from watching it is every time, because we watched it on VHS, because it was still before the days of DVD, every time there's that sort of mm-hmm. sort of visual scratch on a VHS where somebody previous to you stopped the film and rewound it mm. because they gave up. Every time I pass one of those, I'm like, well, I got farther than that guy. <laughs> oh, wow. I yeah. love the movie. Um, I, I did not. Uh, I, I remember how annoying movie. The, <laughs> female, the female Princess Leia, like the princess character, her voice, I couldn't handle. Though that was actually a plot point. I can't handle okay. her voice. That I was can't. a plot point, though, where she spoke like a noble person who had, were trained to speak in a certain way, and that's yeah. why they told her, pretend to be a mute, you're not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah, except that her noble voice from, again, American ears, I'm like, yeah. oh my god, if she was any more whiny, I can't handle that. And the two R2-D2, C-3PO, were so bumbling and inept that it was just... What I liked, though, <sighs> what I liked about them, though, is they weren't just the comic relief, but they were also antagonists in that they were constantly trying to sell out this group. Mm-hmm. And that's almost, that's honestly, that's what I wish they had done with Jar Jar. Jar Jar <laughs> would have instantly been a more captivating character had he been trying to sell them out all the that time. That would, would have been Until the awesome. end when he finally rallies his own people, mm-hmm. you know? But it... 
it's just, I don't think there's any way you could have saved Jar Jar. I'm going to say it. I said no, it. there, there I are ways. I didn't say that there would save it. I just say better. Yeah. There, there, if you watch the Phantom Edit where they redub Jar Jar, mostly remove him, but redub him where he does uh, appear, it, it kind of works. My, my idea was to take take the Jar Jar plot line, but instead of Jar Jar, put Rufio in there. Like, as that's what the character looks like. Ah, Rue, and just have him be this badass who's always trying to sell out everybody. This young punk. <laughs> oh! And. Now we are finally at 1960, where he has... Hidden Fortress was his last film made under his contract at Toho, where now they have set up a new thing where he has his own company now, where he's making his own films, Kurosawa Productions, yep. which still exists to this day, and they license out the remakes and stuff. It's run by his son. Uh, with Toho set up as a distributor. And his first film is We're Back to Shakespeare and We're Back to Noir with The Bad Sleep Well. Yes. Which is one of my favorites. So if you don't know it, basically it's Hamlet restaged as a contemporary corporate noir vigilante thriller. It's fantastic. Which is perfect. Yes. So so think Mifune as the Punisher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's literally like his father. It, it, it goes into the whole corporate mindset of if you fail, you have to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Or if, if I fail, you need to take the blame for me and commit suicide. And this guy whose father was forced to commit suicide infiltrates this company like to the point where he's like even marrying the boss's daughter. And starts slowly tearing it down. And some, some people he's killing. Some people he's like... There's like this one guy where... They, this is how they do their spin on the ghost character in, in Hamlet. Where it's this one guy who they, he fakes the death of, forces this guy to watch his own funeral, and then starts using this guy to gaslight other people by making them think he's a ghost. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God! Yeah. And seriously, the scene where he's forcing this guy to watch his own funeral is one of the most amazing scenes, where it's just this guy, like, staring just at, at his wife and his kids sobbing over his tombstone. It's like, oh, no. Oh. And it's The only problem with the film is the ending kind of sucks. It's it's this yeah. weird, oddly abrupt ending. Yeah, it, it doesn't stick the ending. It yeah. doesn't stick the ending, but everything up until then is one of the best Kurosawa movies. In my opinion, it's one it, of my it favorites. It's, it's fabulous. It's just because I love how it's, you know, Mifune is, you know, this, you know, wearing a nice suit, marrying the boss's daughter, corporate drone guy. And at night. And at <laughs> night. And at night. He's the vigilante prowling the streets. Doom, doom, doom. <laughs> Have you ever seen, there's the Punisher movie starring Thomas Jane. Well, is that Punisher Warzone? No. No, no. This is the one with John Travolta as the bad guy. I haven't seen that one. No. Okay. This, that movie was, that guy, the director was very much influenced by Bad Sleep Well. So he basically took Punisher and did it in the form of Kurosawa's Bad Sleep Well. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, instead of just going around with machine guns, he's systematically taking apart an entire organization by turning it on itself. So it's, it's also kind of proto Yojimbo in a way. Because mm-hmm. he's literally turning all these people against all their friends and allies. Okay, yeah, all right. Well, but then it also has the conflict of he's actually falling in love with the daughter that he was marrying just to get revenge. And then actually brings her in on the scheme, and she's like, yeah, they deserve it. <laughs> awesome! Yes! So, but then we get to Yojimbo. Yojimbo! Yojimbo! Mufune is so fun in Yojimbo. That that is Mufune's playground. What's fun though is the beginning of Yojimbo. There's this kind of samurai who's hopping over the wall of the town because he's like, "I'm done. I can't deal with this. I'm getting out of here." Yeah, that's the guy who played Sanjuro Sagata. Oh my so, god, that's right. So it's Kurosawa's first leading man is bailing, and his new <laughs> leading man is coming in. I am out of here. <laughs> 
I am Toshomophony. And it's again, it's, you know, the nameless man comes out of town, pits all the criminals against one another. So this mm-hmm. one was remade in the West. This it, was remade it, as Fistful... Well, it was remade well, in Italy it, as Fistful yes. of Dollars. The, Italy is the West. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, well it's kind of like both West and like East. West, like West, like really West. <laughs> it's in, it's what does that in, even mean? It's in Westworld. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like, you mean? have to go even farther west to yes. get to Italy. From like, really, like, past Japan. You would probably get there quicker going east. I, I agree. Yes. Yes. But, I mean, you could go west what's, and still get to Italy. What's funny about that, though, is it was illegally remade. Since re- it's yeah. a globe. <laughs> what's funny is that it was illegally remade. Uh, they did not get the rights to it. Oh, that's right. And Kurosawa sued them, and he actually made more money off of the royalties of Fistful of Dollars than he made off of any of his own movies. Oh, <sighs> that makes me sad. No, no, but that, hey, that's not to no, say his good. other films weren't successful. It's just that that was one of the most successful movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's super good. But what's funny, though, is he got all the profits because he sued them. <laughs> all of the profits? All, that's, oh. that's why they made Good, the Bad, and the Ugly and for a few dollars more because they weren't making any money off of the first one anymore. Oh, snap. <laughs> that's good what you, job, yeah. Kurosawa. That's what you yeah. get when and, you steal from and Kurosawa. His, his quote on it is, is, Sergio Leone made a wonderful movie. I just wish he had made his own. Oh, snap. Yeah. He's a sassy bitch. Yeah. And, and I should say, Kurosawa was very, he was very pro, he loved Magnificent Seven. He actually really loved the outrage. He loved seeing his films getting remade in the mm-hmm. West. If Sergio Leone had just fucking come to him and said, I want to do this thing, he probably would have been on board with it. Kurosawa yeah. probably would have gone to Italy and spent like a, a fortune just making his own. <laughs> probably. God, imagine him going, making a spaghetti western, taking a year and a half, building an actual village, forcing everyone to live like, live alongside mules. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine oh, that. Oh, God. I could imagine it's that. It's just as well that they just let Sergio Leone do it, and he stole all the profits. <laughs> Eli Wallach, you have to sleep on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some scenes in Good, the Bad, yeah. and the Ugly that would, would not have gone well. <laughs> Yeah, and Yojimbo is in, and Yojimbo was again based on was based on an American crime novel, Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett. Yep. Yay. Uh, loosely based. I mean, but there there's quite a bit of story. And where it's again, it's a nameless guy who comes to a town with two crime lords, and he just sits sets them against one another. And there there was also the Glass Key, which was a film adaptation of Dashiell Hammett, which has like specific scenes that Kurosawa like entirely lifted from. Right. But he acknowledged it, unlike. Sergio. <laughs> oh, Serge. Um, and then uh, Yojimbo is just, it's just such a great, it's gritty and it's cynical, but it also has a sense of humor and charm to it. It, it is so much fun. Well, th- I it mean, is. that's why, that's why a, f- a fistful of dollars really works. I love the, the first thing he sees when he walks in is a dog coming down the street with a hand in its mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I they, <sighs> The Fistful of Dollars is brilliant. Yes. It really is. And I, oh, I yeah. know that he ripped it off from Yojimbo, but no, Sergio Leone did something no, really and, wonderful. And Yojimbo and it. Fistful of Dollars complement each other very nicely. They both are they're both equally brilliant movies. Mm-hmm. They're both just perfectly versions of that story. Yojimbo is delightful. For as fun mm-hmm. as Seven Samurai is, Yojimbo's even more yes. fun. Like watching it is fun. It's, it's got this wily gleam. Yeah. It, you know? it, it, it you can tell Mifune is loose. just having a blast. He is having so much fun. Hello, that and, scenery. I haven't put my teeth marks on it 
and 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 Sanjuro is a wonderful follow up to it. Yes. I mean, they're they're just a perfect pairing. Sanjuro is so it's so different in tone. It's more playful. Yeah, like to the point where it's like the human centipede of samurai. <laughs> Which, let me explain, there's this group of samurai who are literally all walking around in a line like like centipedes. They always follow each other in a line. Okay, yeah, but I don't think you meant to say what you just said. I think what, you did. What, does human centipede mean something else? Oh. Uh, uh. Tom Six's seven samurai. No, oh. no, bad, no, bad. I, I can sew them all together into a single samurai. <laughs> I have not, nor will I ever. Now, is it human centipede? Neither will I. No, no. I, I like that it exists as a weird pop culture thing, but I never want to Oddly, see it. yeah. Like, yeah. good for you. You made that film. Some people enjoy it. I really never, ever want to watch it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Melissa. Well, and I should say that, you know, Sandro, he started as a different film that he then retooled as a sequel. Right. But, and, and, yeah. No. Now, is Sanjuro the one that ends with the impossibly long-held shot? Oh, yeah. It's it's where the, 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 yeah. him and this other samurai have a duel where they're just standing there. And it just goes on for minutes. Yeah. And the then, shot is... Everybody in the, the shot is still, except for, like, the waving Except grass. for everyone watching. And then just suddenly they both do a single swing and are standing there. And then one guy has the explosion of blood and collapses. Which was funny, though, because this, this is what started the whole samurai thing of the geyser of blood. Mm -hmm. It was just meant to be a little spray, but something got caught in the hose. Yeah. And it just caused this <laughs> all over the place. And Kurosawa was like, we're using that. <laughs> yeah. Geyser of blood. That's amazing. Yes. And I should say that guy who also played the villain in Yojimbo is... The final leading man of Kurosawa, Tatsuya Nakadai. Yeah. Who, is it Tatsuya or Tetsuya? Tetsuya, I think. Tetsuya. Yes, Tatsuya Nakadai, uh, who is going to then go on and star in a number of other Kurosawa films, Kagemusha and Ron. He's going to be in a few more here. Yeah. Okay, so referencing my love of literature, Honor Harrington, uh, who uh, becomes fascinated at one point in the series of novels mm -hmm. with what would be samurai fighting but the sword it's convoluted don't just go with it um she because it's set in the future and she's a captain of a space navy but never mind that mm -hmm. but anyway one of the things she says in this book flag in exile one of my favorites of the honor harrington series um is uh that who did, who did honor harrington that's david david Weber. okay seriously the first six books top notch Fucking love them to tears. It gets a little Mary Sue later mm -hmm. on, but the first six books are solid gold. So um, does Kurosawa. We'll get there. Oh, um, <laughs> we will. So, but there's this point because she she is on this planet that she's adopted anyway, and uh, they've they have this sword fighting tradition, and one of the little side comments is, in a real duel, not in the salon, a true duel to the death usually starts. And ends with one stroke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. I thought it was so perfectly encapsulated, yeah. that samurai mystique. Because they, they mention as a throwaway that um, their style of fighting is based off of a movie called The Seven Samurai. See, and that's the thing. There's always supposed to be a stroke that passes through the ribcage and a heart in a single blow. Yeah. And causes the heart to... And it's like, if you actually watch the film, it's like, no, they're just passing their swords. But it's like... He captures the intensity of that moment so much where you're just staring at them so still. And then just one flash of movement and he's dead. 
Well, and, and you would love Flag and Exile because it talks, it is that mm-hmm. dueling moment of stillness mm-hmm. and what they call uh, free, the domination and the crease. Yes. So the domination is the stillness where you are trying to intimidate mm-hmm. your opponent into acting rashly. And the crease is the recognition of the other person's yes. moment of decision to strike. Well, you know, and that goes into the whole battlefield thing of if you get hit just by a bullet or a blade on a battlefield, you're likely going to die just because it's going to slow you down. It's going to cause infection. You're going to lose loss of blood. You know, even if you just take a bullet to the leg, that's probably going to kill you, you know. And, you know, I love how he starts to blend that where samurai who are used to, you know, being able to take people out with one hit are now suddenly faced with guns. They can shoot you from a distance. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we still fight that enemy? And you get that strategy in Seven Samurai. You get the strategy, how do you fight guns? You yeah. know, Jimbo, the entire thing is that the villain that he's fighting in the end he has a gun and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. So he comes up with the great thing of just throw a knife in, into his hand and he drops the gun. And now I can just walk up and kill him. Because <laughs> if you, all you know is how to fire exactly. a gun... I can kill no, you. And with that's a the knife. thing is the guy with the gun is so confident about his gun. So he suddenly gets a knife to the hand and is like, the fuck? Oh shit. <laughs> so then we get to this was another one that became huge in the West. It's actually based on an American novel, High and Low. Yeah. What novel is it based on? It's based on one of the Ed McBain 87 precinct books. Yeah. Oh. Um High and Low is one of my favorite Kurosawas. Yeah. Like top like three yeah. the setup is it's, wow. yeah it's phenomenal the setup is it's this corporate guy who runs a shoe company wants or he he's one of the he's one of the higher ups in the shoe company is trying to set up a buyout where he's going to now buy the entire company from everyone else and is building all of his money and then suddenly there's the ransom note appears we have your son you have to pay this amount but then he finds out that they accidentally kidnapped his chauffeur's son, not his son. Oh, you were telling me about this. So it's this whole moral... The first half of the movie is this whole moral struggle of, should I still lose this entire business deal that will likely get me fired if it doesn't go through to save this man's son? That is not my son. Exactly. Or should I not? What's interesting is the novel, he decides not to pay. Interesting. And so the entire second half of the novel is different. In the movie, he decides, I will pay. And then it becomes this whole police procedural of trying to track down the kidnappers. Yeah. And Mifune plays the the businessman. Mm-hmm. And, and Tatsuya Nakadai is the cop. Yeah. Well, Shimura was, is... There, there are two cops. Well, Nakadai was the lead one. This was when Shimura was very much in background yeah, roles. Yeah. Shimura was one of the other cops. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's a police procedural to track down this. this and there's these wonderful criminal. scenes where you have the kidnapper who... The kidnapper is a medical student who is a doctor who just lives in an apartment underneath the hill of the guy's mansion and has just built this resentment towards this rich guy on the hill and just wanted to tear him down. And uh, there's these great scenes of the, the villain, of the, this kidnapper just prowling through this ghetto with these mirrored sunglasses, mm-hmm. these mirror shades. Nice. And it's just beautiful photography. Well, when I when I first saw High and Low, it, it's filmed in black and white. Um, and it's um, it makes amazing use of spot color mm. in just a couple moments. But this is one of those movies where I watched it. I watched it off of a DVD from Netflix and I didn't pay attention during the credits. I had no clue it was a Kurosawa movie. I, I just got it out of the blue. It's like, I don't know what this is. I'll pop it in. And I watch it and it just gets 
more and it's more so incredible. And it, it's the first half and the second half are just these two wonderful things. Yeah, so it's like, for me, it's a movie that just came out of the blue. And then, like, the last scene where they ca- capture the kidnapper is now Mifune's character is seeing him on the other side of this glass in a cell and saying, you ruined my life. Why? Because because he paid the ransom, he didn't get to do the deal. He lost his job, lost the entire company, and it was all for naught. And this guy ended up murdering people too. And this entire it, it it's just this guy ruined everything for, for nothing. Yeah. And what was interesting, they were going to do a remake of this a few years ago. It was going to be who's the guy who directed Graduate? Mike uh, Nichols. Yeah, Mike Nichols. Before he passed away, yeah, he was going to do it. Um, Goodfellas director. Scorsese. Scorsese was going to produce it. David Met wrote a script for it, <laughs> which isn't great because I don't love his scripts. Yeah. Um, but it would have been interesting to see what that would have been. But then, of course, Mike Nichols passed away. I would have paid money to see that. So, Noel, what do we have next? Next, we have Redbeard. <gasps> and this is kind of the end of the the period from 1959. This was 1965. It's that end of that yeah. 15-year period. Uh, Redbeard is... It's an interesting story. There were there's this one author I can't remember his name for once, uh, <laughs> who Dostoevsky. No, he was a Japanese novelist. No, I haven't read any of his because none of them have been published in English. But Sanjiro is based on his work. Redbeard is a couple of his later oh. films are, and it's like this one author that he was just really he was a friend of, so he would adapt a lot of his work. Okay, uh, Redbeard is based on an anthology. the The story is. It's Mifune as a doctor in, this is set in again, 1800s Japan, yeah. where it's this, he has this young doctor who was trained by the Dutch. Because Dutch, the Dutch were the only Westerners who were allowed in Japan for a long time. Yeah. Actually, this was 1700s. Because for a long time, the Dutch were the only people let in. And they weren't even allowed to go into mainland Japan, but, you know, people could meet them around the port towns. And so there was this one young guy who studied medicine, the Western medicine who is now becoming the apprentice to someone who studies Eastern medicine. And it's this whole kind of clash between East versus West in terms of how to treat patients. And it's kind of this little story about like these various stories about here's this patient, here's how this went, here's this patient, here's how this went. This is where we get Dostoevsky again, where it's just part of a Dostoevsky novel was restructured as one of the patient stories. Mm -hmm. This young girl who had epilepsy. I actually think he did a much better job with it than Dostoevsky did. And it's it's not a bad film, but it's like two and a half hours of these two doctors arguing over how to treat patients. Yeah. It's not bad. It's just, it's a very slow movie. Yeah. It's not terribly exciting. But it was... Oh. it was it, an- it, It's interesting from, like, I haven't seen that story told anywhere else. Right. But... Yeah, it, it's it's a movie for There's the patient. There's probably a reason why you haven't seen yeah. that story. No, and it's not. But again, it's not that. It's oh a, no, the the concept's fantastic. It's not that it's a bad movie at all. It's just it's where this is where Kurosawa is just kind of a little full of himself and is just not restraining himself at all. And so mm-hmm. it's again a movie. It's a quiet drama where again he literally built an entire city and spent a year filming it. Mm-hmm. And this is actually this is this was the film that him and Mifune broke up over. Why? Yeah. Because Mifune, not only was it because it was a long shoot, but Mifune, as the lead character Redbeard, was required to grow a full beard and have that beard for a full year, which this was right after Mifune started his own production company, and suddenly he's not allowed to make any other movies for an entire year, which caused his company to go under. And and it's just him and Kurosawa just... Couldn't... Yeah, but then again, it's not like he didn't know Kurosawa was that no, guy. I know, but it was also it was just a very inconvenient time for it. Mm-hmm. And they just, 
they said some things. You know, it was it was a break up. That's the it's Oh, we'll get to the And he said, said he said. Yeah, and we'll get and I it should be said that they then didn't talk to each other for like twenty years. Oh yeah. and then we'll get to it like the death of Ishira Honda. Yeah. Who will come in again later in the story. They both went to the funeral and the big thing at the funeral was they both kept eyeing each other from other sides of the room until they just walked over and just spent the entire rest of the funeral hugging and crying together. Oh. Oh. And then that, see Godzilla yeah. brings people together. Yeah. Oh. And then they both died within two years of each other, and yeah, you know, and that's like they they kind of came. Well, and then it also like you know, leading up to that was uh, Kurosawa like kind of tore Mifune apart for agreeing to appear in Shogun because Shogun was not popular in Japan. No. You know no. the James Clavell miniseries. Probably, yeah. Probably yeah. for very good reasons. Yeah, and because I don't remember the... much of it, but it was definitely a yeah. Western viewpoint on an Eastern culture. Yeah, and he would always tear him apart, like you know Red Sun, that one with him and Charles Bronson, <laughs> which is a hell of a thing. Which is a fun movie, but it's yeah. It's, yeah, that is a. It, it's yeah. cowboys and aliens. It it should be much better than it is. <laughs> Regarding the off-topic thing you mentioned about telephoto lenses, which I think I mentioned, but Kurosawa had developed a cinematography technique, uh, I think with Seven Samurai, and then it carried on through his entire career, where he would film everything on multiple cameras at once, all in the distance with telephoto lenses. So so none of the actors would know what camera to play for. Huh. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and they're so in the distance that you don't even see them most of the time when you're acting. They're not like up in your face. He would stop you. He completely stopped using close-ups at all. Uh, and also the telephoto lens flattens everything. So there's like no depth of field. Right. Everything is just all on top of one another. Yeah. So yeah. everything in the background is also in focus. And that's like where you get the whole action scenes in Seven Samurai where he's like, just have all this shit play out. I'm filming it with 20 cameras. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's going to happen. I'll mm-hmm. pick out whichever yeah. I like. And, you know, and he considered editing to be as important as screenwriting because that's always the final draft of the movie. Indeed. Yeah. I'm glad he was a smart man because it is so And I true. forgot to mention, he was the editor on all of his own movies. Yes. Except his last year. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Kurosawa. <laughs> so I, I should mention, though, that this was, this was also, again, when his contract with Toho expired. Mifune had left him. This is when Kurosawa... Bad breakup, bad This is when Kurosawa... Yeah, exactly. He's like, Mm -hmm. let's try something new. He came to Hollywood. Oh, he did. And it does not go well. So this this is when... Why didn't it go well? Oh, we'll get there. This is this is Runaway Train and Tora Tora Tora. (laughs) So Runaway Train was this was gonna be his first color movie. It was gonna be made with Embassy Pictures. It's set in like it. And this is this is where again why I love Emperor of the North. It's basically like his version of Emperor of the North, it's yeah. set in the Great Depression. Hobo's on a train, where something happens to the front car, and it's this train that's just running out of control. And it's these. It's not hobos, but it's two escaped prisoners. And this train is heading towards downtown New York, just screaming down the rails, and. It's people trying to figure out, okay, can we derail it somewhere? And then they find out that there's people on board. Can we derail it and kill these people in order to save the town? Especially then when they learn they're prisoners. So it's these prisoners trying to make their way to the front of the train. And the thing is, the train had plowed through something, so it's all mangled up in front in terms of all the controls and stuff. So it's them trying to figure out how to get to the front of the train and slow down the train before everyone else just derails it and kills them. Because... 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the problem is this didn't go past the scripting stage because Kurosawa, or it was the, 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 the studio brought in an American screenwriter to take the, the translated Kurosawa script that Kurosawa did with his regular co-writers. But it became this whole clash over, they're not following guideline screenplay format. And this whole pissing contest over, you know, him being like, you need to structure screenplays in this specific way. And Kurosawa being like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a script. I'm directing it. What does it matter? You know, and, and, and what's bizarre is that, you know, the format that Kurosawa uses is what format is nowadays. Because <laughs> yeah. back then, screenplays are basically an entire document of like, here's shot by shot. Here's, you know, you have to list, is it on set? Is it on, loca- on location? It's, you have, it's very technical. They're very drawn out. Old scripts are hard to read. Um, but it became such a pissing contest. And then Kurosawa had another opportunity and he left. This script was finally made in... It was the early 80s, wasn't yes, it? Yes, let me get this. It was made in... Yeah, I didn't put down the year. But yes, it was the early 80s. It was Andre, um, Andre Konchalovsky, who was a Russian director who came over here, who also did Tango and Cash. so but the thing about the script though is it was heavily rewritten instead of being in upstate new york it was put in alaska so it was all snowbound it was made to the present day or in the 80s and then they brought in edward bunker to rewrite it edward bunker is one of one of quentin tarantino's favorite writers yeah he's actually in reservoir dogs uh he's a really horrible writer yeah I mean, he, he's his main claim to fame is he wrote novels about what it's like to be in prison while he was in prison. Okay. And so... He, well, write what you know. <laughs> so the whole problem with Runaway Train is that the first 40 minutes are them in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh. And it's a full Edward Bunker thing. And by and by the time they get on the train and it's, and it's run away, that's like over an hour into the movie. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yikes. I mean, it's not a bad movie. It's just kind of a disjointed movie. It's got some really fantastic... It's never horrible, but it's just kind of disjointed. You can tell which parts are different writers and whatnot. It's, it's got this really, really great performances by John Voight and Eric Roberts, both of whom actually got Oscar nominations for it. Huh. It, the film was actually produced by Canon Films. This Yay! Was, this was during a brief period where they were trying to make legitimate movies as opposed to their... Yeah, the, the five minutes they actually yes. wanted to make something good. Yes. <laughs> Though imagine if this had starred Chuck Norris and Shokasugi. <laughs> yeah, Kurosawa was not really a fan of how it turned out. It's not a no. bad movie. It's on no. Netflix. It's worth a watch. But it, it just, it's not what it was. And that's that's why I always kind of point people towards Emperor of the North. That's what it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still glad you enjoyed that. Oh, so much. <laughs> song aside. Yeah. Oh, oh the, the song. song. You, you should have seen the delight on our faces. A, a, the imagine, song adds a whole other layer. Imagine, like, Mifune doing, like, a kabuki version of that song about a man in a train. I am a man. That is a train. A train can never be a man. <laughs> a man. It's not a train. A train can never be a man. All, all I can think of is... In the Ooh. background, that yes. with that with the drum, yes. Anyway, but going so on. so then this led to Tora Tora Tora, which was going to be a big production set up at 20th Century Fox, where the idea was we'll get an American to direct the American side, we'll get a Japanese to direct the Japanese side, and present both sides. It's just a very matter of fact. This is how it actually went down, not really not really condemning one or celebrating the other, just like a pure thing. And 
They lured Kurosawa in by saying that David Lean would direct the American side. Yeah. Instead of David Lean, they got Richard Fleischer. Not the same. Richard Fleischer, who not a not terrible director, but he's the guy who did Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonia, mm-hmm. Silent Green, Doctor Doolittle. <laughs> Wait, which Doctor Doolittle? The original. The original. I yeah. kind of like the. Yeah, original. no, no, he's not no, a he's, he's, he's not, not a bad director, and he's actually the son of Max Fleischer, who did all the old Superman cartoons. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I was, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, and uh, Tora 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 is not bad. No, I actually just watched it today. It's yeah. What's what's interesting is all the American side stuff by Fleischer is just really bland and wooden. Yeah. The Japanese stuff is really good. It's it, it is. It, it, it has well, this intensity. Because well, they used they still used Kurosawa's script. The thing is, okay, let's let's see. Kurosawa did not direct it. Right. The thing is, Kurosawa spent a year working on this movie, developing the screenplay, uh, but was kind of hell to work with. Because uh, he, because basically his screenplay was originally that oh the Japanese side is going to be over two hundred minutes long, and they're like um no that's going to be the entire movie no no that's the Japanese side. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have a problem with this? Yeah. Release it in three parts. So, but he fi- it finally got to a point where they all agreed on a script, and they started shooting. Two weeks into shooting, they had him declared mentally ill. Why? So they could cancel his contract and just ship him back to Japan. And so the, the, the director... But they kept his script. They kept his script, and there's a couple shots in the movie that are still him. The, the directors that they brought in were Kinji Fukusaka, who did Message from Space, uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and the Battle Royale movies. Yeah. Uh, and then Toshio Matsuda, who in the 70s actually went into animation and did the, uh, the entirety of Star Blazers. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Not, not bad replacements. No. And what's really. fascinating, though, is they still do a really good job. There is this intensity to the Japanese sequences where in the American ones, it's all very matter of fact. This is this is just the cut and dry. This is exactly what happened. All the yeah, it's factoids. Kinda, it's kind of very, very It's very early seventies. Yeah, it actually it, feels like nineteen fifties. It's so, yeah, but it, but it's yeah. it's like that early seventies yeah. fact of um, just kind of matter of fact yeah. TV melodrama. Yes, sort of. it's it's like a it's like an yeah. episode of Perry Mason. Yeah, and then and you then get the, to Japanese the Japanese ones, stuff. There's is this awesome. intensity because there's this whole shit's about to go down. Yeah, I don't know if we're supposed to be proud or afraid of it, but shit's going to go down, and we're going to do this. And you also get all the great stuff with with Admiral Yamamoto, who was a fascinating character in that he loved the West. He actually studied in the West. Yes, went to Harvard and all this mm-hmm. stuff, and he would even tell his men. Stop listening to the propaganda. That's not telling you the truth about what American is like. Pipe in the Hawaiian music on the radios, even you know. And and he's like, I need you to understand that you're not killing monsters. You are killing other soldiers. And he wanted his men to respect the men that they were fighting, mm-hmm. which is weird. And it's like he he would even say, We're not going to win this war. We're going to be able to. We're going to raise a lot of hell for about a year, but they're going to take us. You know. And and in fact, the Battle of Midway. Yeah. Went that way. Ooh, I would love to do a compare contrast of General Robert E. Lee and Yamamoto. What's fascinating is one of Kurosawa's co-writers then wrote a basically a spin-off movie of Admiral Yamamoto covering his broader story starring Mifune. Because, <laughs> wow. Kurosawa couldn't because they'd broken up. Right. Yeah. And it's just Toro 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 is the Japanese side where it's like up until the last hour, it's just American side, Japanese side. The Japanese side is engrossing. The American side is watchable. But then you get the whole Pearl Harbor attack, and it's just spectacular. Yeah. 
Just the, the editing, the Goldsmith score, the sounds of the planes, the amazing on-location stunt work that they made with practical planes. Like, they even have, like, radio-controlled planes kamikaze in the buildings. For real. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Tora, Tora, Tora they is... They basically recreated Pearl Harbor. It, it is a mixed bag, but it is worth working your way through yes. it. And again, the Japanese side, the Kurosawa core. And the thing is, the American side, the screenwriter that they brought in was a guy who wrote Perry Mason episodes. He was one of the head writers of Fantasy Island. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Which isn't a bad show, but it's just, that's not who you pair with Kurosawa. (laughs) Oh, God. I suddenly Uh, had a flash of of Hervé Villachez. De plane, de plane. I have nostalgia for Fantasy Island. Tara, Tara, (laughs) Tara. Oh, God, don't. (laughs) No. No, that's me, bad. Me fune. No, no. <laughs> oh, shit. Come I just on, closed my documents. Oh, no. Okay. So what? What happened? I, I actually know what happened. But uh, what happened is when he came back to Japan, things were not good because you had this whole new generation of studio executives who all branded who branded him as old fashioned, mm-hmm. as, you know, he's beyond his time. Did you see how big that red beard thing was? And he couldn't get funding. And also then all the whole tabloid stories about Tora, Tora, Tora with him being declared mentally ill and all that stuff mm-hmm. came over and just haunted him. And so what happened was three of the other major directors in Japan at the time, uh, Keisuke Kinoshita, Masaki Kobayashi, and Konichikawa. Formed, Kobayashi is awesome, by the way. Yes. They all formed a production company with Kurosawa called the, the Committee of the Four Musketeers. This would basically be... Like, if, say, in the early 80s, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg all formed a studio. Yeah. Or SKG. Yeah. So, I mean, DreamWorks was supposed to be, holy yeah. shit, DreamWorks. Yeah. So what happened was they all pulled together. They all developed project. Well, I'll get to it in a second. And then then gave Kurosawa a movie. And this is Dodeskaden. And Dodeskaden... Bizarre film. It's a bizarre film, and bizarre. it's 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 his first film in color, and he it's it's like literally a kid having his first wet dream of color. It is like so color. It, it, it yeah. is just pastels and contrasts, and it's just literally like violent explode a vomit of color. Yeah, it it is like Peter Max ate a box of crayons sort of color. Yeah. It it's um yeah yeah it's it's like obnoxiously color yeah but so it, this, and, and it is an art film it is and it's, it is it is so pretentious. it's a film where it's it's kind of an anthology film but it's all like interrelated where it's a group of people who all live in a junkyard it's a junkyard shanty town mm-hmm. okay of all these various people and they'll just like follow this person into his house and there's his little story and follow this person mm-hmm. to their house. And, like, you have the entire film is bookended by a mentally handicapped boy who dreams of being a a rail car driver. Mm-hmm. And so he'll literally just, like, every morning he'll get up and get his rail car all cleaned up and in order, this fantasy invisible rail car. And then he'll just start driving it around the junkyard going, Dodeska den, Dodeska den, which is the sound a train makes. Yeah. And he'll just be doing this for the entire movie, coming in and out, going through all the stories. And the various stories are like, um, you have the, the swinger couple who every night the husbands will get drunk and not realize that they've gone home to the wrong wives, but the wives don't care because they love them both. Uh, or like the one guy who is 
uh, so depressed over the the lover that he left behind a long time ago that he doesn't even recognize her when she shows up again. Mm-hmm. You know, or there's the the girl who's being molested by her uncle, uh, who then violently lashes out at the boy who cares for her, and it's just these weird little stories that none of them really connect. Or yeah, I mean, the most interesting one is the 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 homeless guy and his son who every night the homeless guy would tell his son about this large mansion that they'll all live in one day. But then at one point when they're, when they're begging for food, they get the wrong fish and they both die of poisoning. And as they're dying of poisoning, they see the mansion, you know? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it did Eskadon is a movie only for the truly intrepid. It's, it is. It, I mean, and that's coming from me. It's a fa- visually, it's a stunning film to see at least once. Yeah. It's an interesting film with Kurosawa, but it's, it's not good when it came out. Critics and audiences were like, what? What the actual yeah. hell? And yeah. it was, t- I mean, it, it was nominated for an American, for a foreign film, but it, nobody really wanted to see it. The critics tore it apart. And this, that whole production committee of the four top directors instantly fell apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurosawa was told you'll never make another film again. And this is the point when he slashed himself 20 times with a razor and almost killed himself. <sighs> And it was entirely because he was told you'll never make a film again. Because, wow. yeah. And and I should also point out uh, Dora Heita. Dora Heita was the first film that this production company was going to do. It was going to, all four directors wrote this film together. Mm-hmm. And they were each going to direct a quarter of it. And because Dedeskaden bombed so spectacularly, the script was just shelved. But it was then dusted off in 2000 and was released in 2000. Konichikawa was the only of those four directors who was still alive at the time, so he directed it. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's just, it's your typical samurai movie. You know, comes to a town, fights the corruption, big sword fight at the end. But what's funny about it is that the samurai is this jolly, middle-aged, chubby guy who comes in as just like best friend. He's like Uncle Buck. <laughs> It's seriously, it's Uncle Buck the Samurai. I can get behind that. Yeah, and of course, you know, he's this jolly guy who's good friends with everyone until he takes out the sword and violently kills Mm -hmm. everyone. And it's fine. It's kind of an interesting window into what could have been. So then five years go by until he makes another movie. Yeah. Oh, God. What was he doing? Apparently Uh, recovering recovering from severe depression. Recovering from suicide depression. He starred in a number of whiskey ads. Yeah. Uh, no, that's not no, no seriously. Um, the whiskey you, the whiskey company starts funding his films too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It, what was it whiskey company again? Uh, it was uh, uh I actually got it right here under yeah. Kagimushi. So so Suntory. Dear, Suntory whiskey. Dear listeners, if you get some of the uh criterion discs from the seventies or eighties. Yeah. Well, from the, in, in the Kurosawa se- films that were made in the seventies or eighties, in the seventies line, he stars in them. In the eighties, he actually stars directly. Yeah, but the, those Criterion discs for these this era of Kurosawa movies mm-hmm. contain those whiskey commercials. Yes, <laughs> and a lot of times he's appearing beside Francis Ford Coppola mm-hmm. or or George Lucas because they were also involved in funneling some money to him right. to get some movies made. Yeah, which we'll get to here in a minute. But then what happened, and this is also when he started painting again. And this is when he started really developing his style of, let let me paint a film so I can show people this is the film I want to make. Will Mm -hmm. you give me money to make it? 
And so that this is the long way around, man. I can't is, help that. I am just stuck well, on that. His thing is they were very fast. He didn't like, they weren't like these, le- they're very fast, very scrubby oh, yeah. paintings. Yeah. So that he would do very quickly. But they're, they're, they're still beautiful. oil. Yeah. I can't handle that. I can't handle committing like that. That's just, ugh. So, but then this is when the Russian stepped in. <laughs> and, and, that, and, and this is how yeah. Dersu Uzala happened. And then, and then his next film is Dersu Uzala, where he was invited to come to Russia. Where it was actually a film, it was actually a, a, a memoir that he had wanted to adapt like 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's how they knew he was interested. And it's it's this one, it's basically this Russian map maker is just on a cartography mission to map the southeastern part of Russia on the border to China. And he keeps meeting this this little wily old mountain man named Dersu Uzala, mm-hmm. who is kind of their guide and will teach him little tricks around the mountain mountain and... They just they just become friends and it's like he it's like three expeditions every time he goes on an expedition he keeps finding this mysterious little old man who lives by himself on the mountain. Dersu Uzala is one of his most beautiful movies. It is. It, it is it just just gorgeous. It is. And it's just them wandering the Russian wilderness the like the Mongolian wilderness and yeah. stuff. It, and it it's very quiet. It's very patient movie. I think we're putting Wendy to sleep. Yeah. Well, Wendy's also drunk. <laughs> Um, I am drunk and I have not had enough sleep. But in the last three nights, you guys finish this episode. I'll catch up. Yeah, we can <laughs> we can keep going. Yeah, di- I, I really love Dersu Uzala. It's hey, um, Wendy. Can I at least show you one thing real quick? Yes. Okay. Here's some of his paintings. Oh, those are amazing. Yeah. Look at that. We need to put those in the show notes. I can't help it. You can see why he really had a fondness for Van Gogh. Oh yes. So, yeah, Van Gogh. I mean, and then Dersu Uzala also then has that whole climax where it's. The mountain man, he, he realizes the mountain man is starting to lose his sight, so he invites the mountain man to come into civilization with him, and that, of course, completely undoes the mountain man. It's kind of like the I Live yeah. in Fear again. Yeah. That's kind of a theme that we'll see, like, in I Live in Fear, There's Uzala, Ron, uh, Rhapsody in August, of, mm-hmm. like, old people only become senile when their choices are taken away from them. It's you true. Know, it's when their lives no longer become their own. Beautiful movie, especially if there's oh, the whole, so gorgeous. The whole thing where they're stuck on a on an ice lake in a snowstorm. I love that scene so much. It the it, and it was actually filmed in Siberia mm-hmm. and the And what's funny, I just just yeah. incredible vistas mm-hmm. of unspoiled wilderness. It, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And it was fascinating because I did also read the memoir that it's based on, which is just as literally this one guy's diary. Yeah. And it's 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 a entirely one hundred percent ident they just went and retraced the entire journey. And it's just it's a beautiful movie. And then oh, so good. And then it's another five years, and then this is this is when <laughs> this is when Lucas and and Coppola come in and, and help get Kagemusha made. I love Kagemusha. I do too. I really love Kurosawa's movies of this era. Because he's going all out. Because he's going all out, and when he gets his hands on color, yes. he just grabs hold I of mean, it. I mean, Kaden was him going a little too far, but then, then he figures it out. Yeah. Then he's got it down. And, and Well, the problems with Dodesca Den were not the color. No, I know. But <laughs> but he still went a little far with the color. Yeah. But uh, uh, Kagemusha is... if uh, Dear listeners, if you've ever seen the movie Dave, where yes. you have Kevin Kline taking over the role as president because he looks just like the president, that's a remake of Kagemusha. That, that is well, the, it's the prince and the pauper story. Yeah, it's the prince and the pauper. It, it's where, you know, the emperor gets killed. The emperor's double has to now pretend to be the emperor. Yeah. 
you know, and I actually love that whole scene where it's the one guy showing how he shot the emperor. Yes. <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, I measured it out. I put this bag here. <laughs> uh, beautifully shot movie. Lots of fun. And, um, and it's samurai, full color. My my only problem, and this extends to Ron too, is I don't love Tatsuya Nakadai as the lead. Interesting. I, I think he's a very good actor, but I don't find him that charismatic as a lead. I yeah. imagine what this film would have been like with Mifune. I I agree with you there, at, at least with Kagamusha. Yeah. See, I think I think he's a good fit for Ron. Yes, but because Ron is more of an ensemble. It is a more of an ensemble piece. Um, it's more about the people acting around him rather than just and, him. And then, whereas Kar- uh, Kagamusha rests on his. He shoulders. also doesn't get that fierceness that you need when he's playing the emperor. Not where it's a bit there, but I, I like. Get the fear, I, like I, I get like, the fierceness. It's a different fierceness than Mifune. But I love the bit where he's like stoically, like, "Should I still be sitting here in this battle scene?" And it's like because he stay, stayed there, he inspired the entire army. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the entire end scene when he's been exiled and kicked out, but he's trying to stop these people from going to their deaths, and they they're just sitting there watching as they're all slaughtered. And I, I think it's dismissed too much because there was that whole line of it was his test ground for Ron. But it's like, I think I like oh. Kurt. I love Kurt. He, did, he didn't undercut it at all. Oh, no. Uh, Kagamusha is a, an amazing little movie. Oh, yeah. Well, not that it's little by any means. It's It's got that it's got that scope. It's not quite as big as Ron. Right. But, I mean, few things are as big as Ron. Right. And we should point out, this was when Ishiro Honda came in to direct movies with him. Yeah. Because I love Ishiro Honda had just been stuck doing Godzilla movies for years <laughs> and by the 70s he was literally just doing episodes of Ultraman and was oh. like I don't want to keep doing this so he's like screw it let me just go hang out with here again he can't see I can mm-hmm. so he be- basically became the co-director of a lot of these I have so much love for that <laughs> I know and and he does it for this Ron and Dreams yeah and um also I want to say though we were talking about the lead this was originally supposed to star Shintaro Katsu who played Zatoichi in all of the Zatoichi movies Oh that would have been fun who played for who acted in the film for like 2 days before Kurosawa threw him off the set because they got into this huge fight where he just brought his own documentary crew to film him <laughs> to film himself starring in this Kurosawa movie because he was like I'm starring in a Kurosawa movie now you can I'm making a documentary of me starring in a Kurosawa (laughs) and Kurosawa was like fuck you well fuck that yeah and then they got into a huge row about it and so he got kicked off they only they literally brought in Tatsuya Nakanai at the last minute so Mm -hmm. that that might also be probably the problem was he didn't have enough time to prepare so the next film yes which again was another five year gap Ron Ron was my entry point to Kurosawa. Okay. I remember very clearly I was about 10 years old and I, um, we used to get the, like the full color little magazine that came with our cable channels. And, um, so we had HBO Mm -hmm. and there was on the back page, there was like upcoming movies that were going to be showing on the cable channels. Mm -hmm. And there was this big panoramic view photo of Nakedai. In Ron and a little summary of Ron and the image captured me so much and the the description of it is like I have to watch Ron so this ten year old sitting down and watching Ron and it changed my life I mean that it was it was amazing it was this was it was also led to me reading King Lear for the first time yeah uh, 
it is it's another fascinating Kurosawa doing Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I actually think this one kind of improved on it because I have problems with King Lear. But it's just fascinating group of characters, a great plot. Again, yeah. it's this this person who becomes senile when he's declared to be senile. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole king falling as his own sons turn on him. Then mm-hmm. I also just love his little court jester played by Peter. Yeah. And the visuals. I think this is where it's a Kur- Kurosawa truly came into his own in using color photography. Yes. Because you can see it in Kagamusha. Well, Kagamusha because you get those red and blue samurai yeah. armors versus each it, other. It's beautiful. But 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 in, in Ron, it is so sharp well, and, and yeah. so beautifully executed and so epic. Because I think, yeah, that was the thing. In Kagemusha, everything is just a distinct color. There's yeah. your white armors, there's your blue armors, there's your red armors. In Ron, everything is just this whole patterns and flows and fabrics. And it, it's just, it's just so gorgeous. Yeah, especially it, when it's he, beautiful. Especially when he's in the kind of ratty red robes, his orange dress jesters next to him, and they're just scrambling through these fields of grass. Mm-hmm. That whole bit where he's just going and singing and shouting to that—it's like going back to the Sun True Sagata image. Just yeah. him in a field of grass shouting to the heavens while this wind is roaring. Mm-hmm. It, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, so beautiful, and and it's not just the color though. I mean, there there's the sound design mm-hmm. of the film too. I mean, this is a class A epic. Yes, and um, and this was nominated for like seven Oscars. Oh yeah, it and as well it should be, yeah. and it's it's astounding because you get that scene where it, it's fairly early in the movie where there there's the invasion of the castle and the lord comes into the castle and and the battle is taking place mostly it's it's not in silence there's some music over it but you can't but it's hear like the, the music is the slowly sound. taking over it yeah the, the the you hear the music but none of the uh, diegetic sound you you yeah. hear none of the the clashes of battle or anything gunfire yeah exactly. it's it's all dulled out and and it's all just swords and then and yeah fire. just the whole shots of like all of his his harem are all killing each other so that yeah. they won't get killed you know yeah just everyone is just plunging to their deaths while he he's just stumbling through his castle as it's burning down around him yeah and then the the silence is cut by the single gunshot which brings down the lord that's invading yes and it's such a striking scene and I, I, I remember it being like an introduction to the power of sound for me. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have this long, long, long scene where you don't hear anything except for the music. And then all of a sudden it's the gunshot and then chaos erupts around it. Because that is the point where everything in the scene turns. That the yeah. entire dynamic turns around. Exactly. It is, for a filmmaker who has made so much great filmmaking, mm-hmm. it is some of his best filmmaking. It's amazing. It, it just astounding. It is. It is. I think his last masterpiece. Yeah, I'll, I'll I, agree. I, with I that. like some of his later films, but it 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 is the last time where it's just him running at the top of his game. Yeah, full freedom, so much control. And again, it was uh, it was a French studio came in and helped finance. And this time, it was actually one of the people who runs Venice. Mm-hmm. And We'll see that again with Dreams, where Spielberg came in and got him a deal with Warner Brothers. Right. You know, it's he only was able to do these things because of outside resources, which, to be fair, they were more expensive than any Japanese film had ever been. Because in Ron, right. they built a castle and then burned down the castle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear listeners, if you have not seen Ron, do yourself a treat and see Ron. It is one of the most amazing war movies ever made. You should run and go see it. Ah! Uh... <laughs> 
So, and then another five years goes by where he figures that that was going to be the end of his career. And it was also during Ron, his wife died. Oh. And they paused filming for just like three days. Mm -hmm. So he could go out and, and deal with that. And so then it's like another five years goes by. And this is where for his last few films, it becomes much quieter or more contemplative for mm-hmm. so and then that's when dreams happen and, and by this time he is blind pretty much blind. pretty much yeah and this yeah. is also the last one the honda does with him yeah though this is also his assistant director who started on kagemusha will then carry on and kind of take fill that role mm-hmm. and we'll actually see him do some more stuff after kurosawa died uh and then dreams you, you've seen dreams right oh yes, yeah. yes. Dream, dreams is listeners it's it's an anthology film where it's just various each little story is in a real dream Kurosawa had, but it fought, it's chronological in terms of here's a childhood dream to then dreams of as a 20-year-old, dreams in middle age, mm-hmm. and then dreams as an old man. It, it is just heartbreakingly gorgeous. It is. It's it gorgeous. It is beautiful. And because of the Spielberg connection, they actually brought an ILM to do some effect shots for mm-hmm. it. And it's just, it's an interesting film. It, it, it's, it doesn't all come together for me, but it's very interesting. Yeah, it, it's kind of choppy. The later, I mean, it's it's yeah. an anthology film, exactly. so that kind of comes with the territory. I think it's also because, you know, the childhood ones are much more simplistic. Like, a child goes out into the garden and sees a giant doll display. Mm-hmm. They're dancing on the hill, you know, or, and then you have the one that was actually Honda's dream, was the, the man in the bri- in the tunnel with all I, the soldiers. That I was, think that's my favorite. Yeah, that was, that list. was actually not Kurosawa's. That was one yeah. of Honda's editions. Yeah. And Kurosawa said, since you've been doing all this for me, why don't you do a segment? And, and the I don't, the I don't know eyes. why it connects with me so much, but I love it, the soldier in the tunnel. Movie. I, I love that. And I also love the Van Gogh dream. Then there's the Van Gogh one with Martin Scorsese. It's Martin Scorsese shows up playing Vincent Van Gogh. And then this is where ILM comes through, where the, the, the lead character throughout a bunch of these segments is a character who's just called I, a capital mm-hmm. I. It's basically Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. And this actor would actually be in a lot of his later movies, where it's just this character is now then going through all of Van Gogh's paintings come to life. Yeah. And that was just a beautiful segment. And then you get these weird uh, apocalypse horror segments, like the whole one where it's the uh, Mount Fuji is erupting and it set off all the nuclear reactors. Yeah. And it's like, that's your brief glimpse of what a Kurosawa Godzilla movie would have been like. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's followed by the post-apocalyptic wasteland, the guy with the horns under the giant dandelion. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole old people's village at the end. I kind of like the old people's village. I do It's too. very pretty. It's very it calming. It, it's a very interesting movie. And then also, I forget, like, just the weird one where it's just four guys trudging through snow for five minutes. Oh my god, I forgot about that one. It's a beautiful segment, but it's just, just weird. It's weird, and it... What's fascinating, though, yeah. Snow Trails, that movie that I mentioned, the yeah. early one that you wrote, basically has that segment in it as a Ooh, scene. Wow. With Mifune and, Sh- and Shimura. Huh. Just trudging through snow for five minutes on a mountain. <laughs> I Hopefully it doesn't end quite that bleakly. It doesn't have suddenly a, a ghostly woman appear. Mm. Okay, that's good. So yeah, then there was dreams, and then this is the area one, Rhapsody in August. Oh God! <laughs> which which here's the thing. Here's the thing about Rhapsody in August. That was actually one of the first ones I saw because I took. Oh, ja- that's odd. Well, I had Samurai Seven Samurai was the first one I saw, but when I I took Japanese in high school, mm-hmm. and in freshman year, our teacher showed us Rhapsody in August. Okay, which was strange, and it was bored the hell out of me. I just didn't connect with it at all. And then when I did my project going through all of Kurosawa's films, I absolutely loved it. And here's, huh. here's why. Because in the time in between that, I had gone off to live with my grandmother in the last ah, year of her life. Ah, okay. So I not only then... So it's like, 
And that's the story where these kids are sent off to live with their grandmother for a summer. And it's finally hearing all these stories, learning the actual history of this person, you know, going from the point where you just think of them as that's an old person to this was a real person who's lived a real life. And I really connected with that because I went through that experience when I moved in with my grandmother, suddenly learned a lot of family history, a lot of her personal history, really got to know her as a person. But then you're also simultaneously watching the decline mm -hmm. as she's falling apart, as they saw with this woman, too. And it's like I really connected to it on that level. Interesting. So it's, it's one of those films I don't know that I would recommend it to anyone outside of, who doesn't have that personal experience, too, because it is kind of it's a very slow it, it's a slow, contemplative, very quiet piece. And, and Richard they, Gere shows up. And Richard <laughs> Gere shows up claiming to be half Japanese, which I don't yeah. really buy. Because, yeah, there's the entire thing where she was a survivor of Nagasaki. Yeah. And the family is like, but we can't tell anyone that because we're setting up deals in America and we don't want anyone to feel bad about that. Mm -hmm. But then the family in America, because it was like one of her brothers went off to America and married an American or something. Mm -hmm. like that. And then Richard Gere finds out and comes back and is like, I, I feel horrible about this, but I want to learn. I want to learn this history. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I, I think the most interesting angle about the movie, I mean, coming from my viewpoint, is the Nagasaki angle because it's a lot of the movie is about dealing with Nagasaki, however many years after the fact, uh, 40 years after the fact. Yeah. And um, well, that I don't agree yeah. with the criticism that I got on that where it was. It was he was accused of having an American apologize for the nuclear bomb. No, he was no. Yeah, no. he was having this character who felt bad that this relative went through this experience. Yeah, and as he apologized, he's like, "No, no, don't worry about it. It's not your not your fault." And I that also I connected with that on a personal level because I've I went to Hiroshima, and I actually broke down in tears. I mm -hmm. I felt horrible when I saw everything that happened there. Mm -hmm. You know, I know. Yeah, it's I I understood that. I I, I never got the the sense that was the movie about at all. It, yeah. It's a movie about these but characters. But created a huge public scandal because they accused him of it in the media. Ah, that's yeah. unfortunate. All the critics tore him apart. Be because it, it's really about all these characters coming from different viewpoints, looking at what happened at Nagasaki mm -hmm. and, and coming to terms with it mm -hmm. in differing ways because of their ages and because of where they grew up. And I think one of the nice points about it is that... It's too late because she's already declined to the point where she does lose herself in the end. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if only you guys could have done this a little sooner. Right. And you guys could have shared more of a bond. It's this whole family that's split apart that is now coming together, but it's too late. You've lost her. Right. It's 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 a sad story, but it's also, I, I don't know, I just found it really touching. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's a so languid. It is just such a slow, quiet pace because he's doing all the distant cameras. There's no close-ups. Yeah. It, it's a very distant film. Mm -hmm. it's it's a hard film to get into. I don't know. If I hadn't had those personal experiences that kind of mirrored it, I don't know that I would have gotten into it as much. But I really like it now. I'm glad it's there. And it's it's a, uh, once again, it's a very pretty film to watch. It is. It, I especially remember the final minutes of it. And just in how, the storm with the Just how umbrella. beautiful the storm is. Kurosawa could film weather like nobody else. Because yeah. like, he would sit and wait for a storm to come through. He would wait for weeks until a storm came through and he'd film it. I just had a thought of what a Kurosawa disaster movie would be like. <laughs> it would be like an hour and a half of people like sharing life stories and poetic philosophies and all that stuff. And then you'd have 10 minutes of a mudslide and then everyone sitting around looking depressed. Pretty much. With great music. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and it would look fantastic. So, the last film of Kurosawa, Matadayo. Yes. I like Matadayo. I do too. What's also fascinating is his first real film was No Regrets for Our Youth, because that was his first one outside the Japanese censorship. There's so many parallels, because this is also a 20-year story mm-hmm. from the 1930s, up, or no, it was the 1940s until the mid-60s, so it actually follows... It's almost this autobiographical look at his own career because right. he started in the 40s. He peaked in the 60s. Uh, and it's this teacher who becomes so beloved to his students that as in Kurosawa's career, these people will then come and help him in old age when he's down on hard times mm-hmm. so that he can continue doing his work and, and living. It's a very sweet movie. It Once is. again, it's very quiet. It's a very quiet movie. But yeah. it is. It's a very sweet movie. It Again, it, it shows the whole post-war devastation, the whole rebuilding of the economy. Again, it, it's this fascinating almost, let's just kind of encapsulate a lot of the things that Kurosawa did in his career while also reflecting. It's a very reflective movie, mm-hmm. reflecting back on his own career and his own life. Right. And I also just love the whole, this ceremony where every year we'll get all these students and these teacher will get together and he'll drink a big, big mug of beer and say, not yet. Matadayo. And then <laughs> yes. what I love what I love is that over the course of the movie, because he's getting older and older, that mug of beer will shrink. Because remember, it used to be like this gigantic cup. And mm-hmm. the last one is just like a little mug. And it's like, because that's all he can get through. Mm-hmm. But then I even love that, you know, he's so old and infirm in that last bit that he's stumbling through it. But he's still there. Yeah. He's not yet. Not yet. Not mm-hmm. dead yet. And it should be mentioned that Kurosawa then planned for two more movies <sighs> that he wrote. Yeah. Uh, which would be made later, and I'll get to them in a second. But then in 1995, as he was completed the scripts and paintings for both, mm-hmm. he fell and broke his spine. Oh. And so then he was stuck in a wheelchair for a few years and then was infirm in a bed further until he passed away in 1998. Mm-hmm. And his dream was always to die on set of a movie making a movie. Oh. And he just felt so crushed that he couldn't. Oh. It's yeah. so sad. And I should point out those last two movies were finally made by other people. Uh, there's After the Rain in 1999, mm-hmm. where what's fascinating about this is basically all of the cast and crew that he had made his last few movies with got together and said, let's just do it for him. It's like a reunion. It is. I mean, his assistant director since Kagemusha came in and directed it. It's all the same cast. His daughter still did all the costumes, same cinematographer, same music. Mm-hmm. Even Toshiro Mufune's son comes in and plays a supporting role. <laughs> Yay. And both of these, after the rains he was watching, were based on uh, other works by the guy who wrote Redbeard and Sanjuro and all that stuff. Uh, after the Rain is this wonderful film. It's it's the guy who plays I in Dreams. Okay. okay. Uh, is this samurai who's wandering around with his wife, trying to find another lord who will hire him. Mm-hmm. And along the way, he's making money by street fighting. <laughs> by street fighting with duels where he's killing each other. Uh, and his wife doesn't approve. Uh, but he catches the attention of a lord played by Mufune's son, where he gets audit, you know, you can go through, we'll test you out, see how you're doing. And along this journey, he a, a rain comes in and floods out the road. So it's this whole group of odd people who are all passing down the road, are all taking shelter in this one little inn. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of follows them for one night. It's just like you, know, you get an actress, a geisha, just various peasants, lords. It's it's almost kind of like a Neil Gaiman story. Nice. Uh, it's like all these various weird people stuck in a room for a night. You know, <laughs> and it's just it's it's actually a really charming film. It's a really sweet film, very 
very poetic. A lot of scenes of just walking along the road, looking at the at the flowers and the trees, you know, seeing the river passing by the road. It's just a really sweet, quiet movie. Nice. It feels very much like the later era Kurosawa's. Nice. And then The Sea is Watching is, it was directed by Kei Kumai, who was a longtime friend of Kurosawa's and a director in his own right since the early 60s. And this was actually his last movie. It was, it's a different movie than usually. This it almost feels like a chapter in Redbeard, where it's, it's the story of a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And it's a story... It goes where Kurosawa doesn't usually go. It's a story where it's all women protagonists, which he hadn't really done since the 40s with Most Beautiful and No Regrets for Youth. And it's a film that is very sexual. It's There's a lot of nudity, a lot of explicit sex. Interesting. And it's a very sexual film about this prostitute who keeps falling in love with her clients and keeps keeps hoping for the one who will take her away from this life. Okay. And, you know, like there's one thing where she falls in love with a samurai. It seems all great, but then he skips town. You know, falls in love with this merchant. It goes great, but then he skips town. And it's like she keeps falling in love with these people that she hopes will take her away. And then it's this kind of grimy, down-on-his-luck farmer who would just come in at once a month with all of his monthly earnings and just sleep with her. Ends up being the person that who does fall in love with her. And when a flood comes in and washes out the entire brothel, he takes her home. And <laughs> they just become husband and wife. And it's just this weird little story. Wow. And it's, Interesting. It, it's fascinating because it explores pretty explicitly. I mean, it's not like hardcore, but it's pretty explicitly what it was like to be a prostitute. Mm-hmm. You know, even dealing with, you know, the diseases, you know, how do you present your, prevent yourself from getting pregnant? Mm-hmm. You know, all just the ways in which they were treated well and ways in which they were treated not well. Mm-hmm. And so it just it feels a lot like a chapter from Redbeard. Interesting. Because remember, there's that one woman in Redbeard they find in the brothel. Yeah. Who's the girl with the epilepsy. That was the Dostoevsky one. Yeah. And trying to cure her of her epilepsy and all that stuff. Yeah. And it's it's just it's just a really interesting film. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the end of Kurosawa. It does. <laughs> I love how for like the last half hour, you and I have been having a podcast in someone else's house while they're sleeping on a couch. Oh, yeah. Um, dear listeners, if Wendy has not been chiming in because Wendy is, unconscious. is asleep. If you have heard snoring, that is windy. <laughs> so it's just Noel and I sitting in Wendy's house on Wendy's couch drinking, well, my wine. While Wendy is asleep and While her family Wendy is asleep. And her family is asleep. It's kind of weird. I'm actually listening. Oh, wow. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. By the way, we have reached the end. Oh, my God. Thank God. <laughs> Kurosawa made too many films end scene he, he made 30 he made as many films as he needed to make you hold on to that <laughs> so are you ready for the next episode <laughs> <laughs> alright we're gonna wrap up this episode holy cow we finally finished Kurosawa yay us Woo! and Wendy is awake <laughs> as far as you know I am hmm. ah you know what? It was a nice nap. I have to say it was one of, well, I am embarrassed by it and I wish I had been awake. I was having fun. That said, you know what? Naps are pretty great. Mm-hmm. Speaking of things that are pretty great, let us have our pleasure dome recommendations for the week. Ooh. Who would like to start? I can start really quick. Okay. okay. This is something I will link in the show notes because you have to see it to enjoy it. And it is something you can just see and enjoy. And that is it. I found what is possibly the greatest 
the a most amazing movie poster ever made. It is... I thought you were about to say a photo of Stanley Tucci. Oh, no. It's not just a photo of Stanley Tucci. Well, it's not a photo of Stanley Tucci. <laughs> but it is a poster for a movie called The Land the Time Forgot. But it's yes. not just the movie The Land the F- Time Forgot. It is a tie poster for The Land the Time Forgot. <laughs> oh my god, this has been up on my, my yeah. Facebook feed this, a lot. This yep. is a movie this, it, well, I'm sorry. This is a movie poster that has pterodactyls, aquatic allosaurus, there is a crashing submarine, there are scared people, there is a guy who is falling off of the movie title to his death, there is an erupting volcano, stegosaurus eye, everything, everything is happening on this movie poster, and it is one of the greatest pieces of art ever made. Can we just slip that on the box sets for Land of the Lost? I... Oh God! That would be chalk up awesome. off the title. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, that yes, would, yes, yeah. So, um, dear listeners, I am going to link to this in the show notes because I am a big fan of foreign movie posters because especially they, when they go nuts. When they go nuts, because this one has gone nuts, and you will enjoy it. It's got a submariner T Rex. <laughs> it does a sub Well, that's an allosaurus. Pardon me, pardon me. <laughs> I, my apologies. Now I just imagine him being this really pissy dictator who like doesn't know if he wants to conquer the surface world or love it. <laughs> oh, no more. I just, I just what love if he the has little wings on his feet. <laughs> I, I really do, truly love the guy who is falling to his death oh. off of the movie title itself. It's amazing. He, he's walking along the title like, "What the hell? Where I would, am I? Oh, I, I, I would love to believe that he was just standing there, and suddenly the title shot up from under him, and he's like, "Why? Why? <laughs> no, no. Okay, that's a good title, though." <laughs> All right, Noel, what is your recommendation for this week? I am going to recommend the anime Samurai 7, which a lot of people dismiss it because it looks like a kind of flashy sci-fi anime, but it is an extremely intelligent and faithful adaptation that captures the entire broader world of Seven Samurai, all the various mechanics of how the pieces fit together. And what's great is in the second half of the show, it then builds on Seven Samurai. It goes beyond that town into like even like up to the emperor itself. This this entire world that this town is just a part of. Ooh. And it builds mm. this wonderfully woven story and then right at the very end loops right back to Seven Samurai. Nice. It's it's a perfect adaptation. Nice. And it's just the way it handles its characters. It looks great. It's a really great adaptation. Avoid, though, Kaze no Yojimbo, the anime adaptation of Yojimbo, which is just this fucking awful, boring, cute blonde guy in a red trench coat shows up in a modern town and is then it just doesn't become Yojimbo anymore. It's just this weird... How do you fuck up Yojimbo? Seriously. You have a character show up in town who is supposed to be this mysterious loner, and within the first episode, we find out he has an entire backstory, a connection to this town, a history with this town. We find out what his name is, his origin, ah! that that he's directly involved with this thing. That, like, within three episodes, he's no longer pitting the bad guys against each other. We actually find out one side are good guys and one side are bad guys. It just It's like, in every aspect of what made Yojimbo Yojimbo, it fails. Wow. It's Even, like somebody did the work to yeah. analyze Yojimbo and go... That, I'm going to do the opposite. Right. And that, I'm going to do the opposite. Exactly. And the thing is, they take the bad guy who in the original was striking because he was the only person who had a gun. 
because it's a modern day story where everyone has guns, they just turned him into he's a creepy guy who uses his gun fetishistically. So he's like tonguing his own gun and making out with his own gun. And <laughs> he's literally like sticking his tongue through the trigger hole. And it's like it. it um, it's a guy who literally makes love to his own gun. And oh, it's like, what the fuck is this? I... Oh, that's vivid. And it just in maybe it's not that kind of anime, but it. It's just it's it's also really shittily but, animated. But there are animes like that. Yeah, uh, yes. they it, exist. This isn't one of those, and it's just it's just it's just a complete letdown. Whereas Samurai Seven is, you can tell they sat down and really analyzed the movie and really understood the movie and built on the movie in really clever ways. So I highly recommend it. I like it. Bravo, Mister Singvold. Well done. And I should say there was actually going to be an animated movie made. Based on a unproduced Kurosawa script he wrote in the '60s, where he did a um, what's what's the the Edgar Allan Poe story where it's the Red Plague? Oh, Mask of Red Mask Death. of Red Death, where it's the all the rich people in their tower trying to f- pretend that the plague isn't going to touch them and they all die of the plague. Yeah, he was going to do it as this big science fiction apocalyptic thing. Oh, and he was actually setting it up to be an animated film that he was going to supervise. Oh. And it just never came about. And oh. they keep they keep dusting it off, but it was like it was gonna be made again a few years ago, but then the whole tsunami hit. And oh. so then that company went under. It's like they keep trying. I hope it gets I made. I feel like Poe and Kurosawa. That's like and, two great tastes that po should and Kurosawa, taste great together. Yeah, and it was, I, I feel like um and the, I should win the lottery. And the animation style was supposed to be done in the style of his paintings. Oh, oh. Wow. And it's like, that is a film that someone needs to make at some point. Yes. All right. Uh, mentioned briefly earlier in one of the two Thingval episodes, um, my, recommend- <laughs> my recommendation is the Honor Harrington books by David Weber. No, that was part nine. <laughs> the first book is on Basilisk Station. If you want to get to the part where it specifically starts referencing uh, Seven Samurai, that would be Flag in Exile, which is the fifth of the sixth book. I can't count it up in my head right now. You could jump ahead, but honestly, all of those books are super great leading up to Flag in Exile. And it still is, pr- the series is still pretty good after that, but it gets into Mary Sue territory pretty shortly thereafter. Mm. But uh, yeah, good stuff. I'm, I, every time you say it gets into Mary Sue territory with Harrington, I keep imagining David Weber trying to cosplay. <laughs> and, you know, and we Honor should, Harrington. And we, we should also then bring up that Kurosawa literally directed a film where a character was called I, the capital I, and was dressed exactly like Kira Kurosawa. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah. It is. I don't... Wow, I'm trying to picture David Weber dressed as Honor Harrington. Uh, we all know what a Mary Sue is. Yeah. Just briefly, that's when a character starts getting a little too perfect. It's where Lovecraft wrote himself as the person who's afraid of everything. Oh, yes. <laughs> it, it's the it's the character that is very clearly the author. <laughs> or... Or like, oh, look at me. I'm so perfect and wonderful. Which, and I that, can do that's anything. the definition of the Mary Sue. Not so much that you're doing an autobiographical, but that you're just glorifying yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so, yeah. But uh, he avoids it for a lot longer than other authors yeah. did with their series. <laughs> I have to say, good job. Good job, David. Good job. So that is my recommendation. Um, military sci-fi, future 
I don't really get into military sci-fi, but it is a good match with Mr. Kurosawa, of course. I don't really normally get into military, um, and you can sort of easily skip over the parts where it gets a, to be a little, like, spaceship porny. Um, <laughs> what, no, I'm, seriously, he'll spend, like, a whole like page or two <laughs> describing like how the space drive works and i'm sure somebody cares but you can just skip over it and really obviously tell when the story picks back up again so there you go imagine kurosawa's starship troopers <laughs> With you know what that would be awesome. mifune is the camp director oh yeah you know and, oh. and he would like actually make them build a real life starship like, and then no, we could finally go to Mars. And y'all need to live in this starship. For like no, a no, year. But, but he burns it down in the final act before they can. <laughs> God damn it, Kurosawa. Also, All right. I also just had a thought. Kurosawa's Dune. I was like, you know what? I would love to have had Jack Kirby just hand him Dune, let him adapt it. And now yeah. let's let's have Kurosawa film Jack Kirby's Dune. <laughs> All right, we got to okay, wrap yes. this up. Yeah, seriously, because we could follow that tangent a Here, long Here's another way. chain. No. <laughs> no. All right, I'm going to wrap this up. All right, listeners, that was another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. This concludes the final taping at Casa de Mupe at Muppet Labs before the grand exodus to Texas. And so this has been lovely. We will continue on after this. Of course we will. And if I fall asleep, you'll never know because it's radio. So I have been Wendy. I have been Melissa. He's been. And I forgot all the other films Kurosawa wrote. Can we go back? No. (laughs) I have been Noel. (laughs) Noel is a jerk. And so, listeners, we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Seriously, that's like another 30 films. Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at xanaducinema.com, follow us on Twitter at Xanadu Cinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. This has been a wonderful behind-the-scenes look. (laughs) I've never fallen asleep during an episode before. I feel both honored and ashamed. No. (laughs) Ugh.